Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Friday, December 18th, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to have a spoiler-filled conversation about the Mandalorian season two finale entitled The Rescue. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And special guest from Star Wars Insider, StarWars.com, and the Full of Sith podcast, and SlashFilm.com, Brian Young. I'm just thrilled to be here. Okay, guys, this was an incredible episode. We'll, we'll get to it in a second, but let's first go to feedback from previous episodes. Let's start first with some emails here. Joel from North Carolina writes in, I just want to thank you guys from the episodic broke breakdowns. Highlight of my week, I noticed that everyone pronounced Bill Burr's character as Mayfield, but it's definitely Mayfeld. So I think we all fell into that trap. So, so just so you know, everybody, his character is Mayfeld for future use. Um, we got an email from Jeremy N. in Washington, D.C. He writes in wondering uh, why the New Republic isn't going to these empire bases afterward to clean them out. Quote, I imagine they're busy, but uh, de-weeding the universe of Imperials would seem pretty high priority. 
Mayfeld, and he says Mayfield here. He got it wrong too. Uh, could could have been put to much better use than breaking rocks. What do you guys think about that one? I definitely think that there was obviously intelligence he still had that the New Republic just sort of glossed over. Like clearly Mayfeld knows about a variety of secret Imperial installations that he could have helped them mop up, but didn't volunteer that information. And it doesn't even sound like they asked. It's not like the Mandalorian and his uh, entourage had to lean on him very hard to find out about it. Uh, so, yeah, I but think I think it seem weird that like the Imperial, like the um, the New Republic have been turned into like these space cops going around and like pulling people over instead of like trying to take out these bases. So uh, this gets addressed actually quite a bit in what's going on in the expanded universe stuff. Well, I guess we can't call it that anymore in the ancillary material. Uh, basically Mon Mothma was working really hard in those years after the Battle of Jakku to actually disarm the New Republic because her fear was that people would just assume they were another empire and another threat to the galaxy. So they dismantled most of the um, naval fleet that was the alliance to restore the Republic once the Republic was there. So there wasn't any New Republic fleet to speak of they, they were leaving that to the individual sectors. And we're dealing with a, a place in the galaxy that where they, they did do a lot of that, right? They did do tons of that, but it was more in the core worlds. And we're dealing on the farthest fringes. These are the places that the Empire was going further and further out to get away from the control of the New Republic. And so, you know, Trapper Wolf and Carson Teva are pretty much like the only people out there. And and Carson says this in that episode, uh, the episode of uh, a couple weeks ago, where he's like, there's something big going on here and nobody's paying attention to it. But I, I can tell, you know what I mean? Like um, the New Republic's just ignoring that sector of the galaxy, which is actually a trap they fell into that we saw that they, they did in Phantom Menace, right? When Shmi tells... Qui-Gon, like, uh, the Republic doesn't exist out here, right? It was all just underworld scum, uh, you know? And you could ask the same question in Phantom Menace, like, well, why didn't they go after the Outer Rim? Why didn't they go after the Underworld or the Huts or whatever? And it was just it was just too big for them. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. Okay, we have uh, another email in from Daniel Nass in Cincinnati. He writes in, has any ship that has belonged to a main character ever been destroyed in Star Wars? I was shocked when the Razor Crest was destroyed since it was an iconic ship uh, of a main character. I don't think that has ever happened in Star Wars. Has it? Uh, okay, Death Star doesn't count, and ships that we see in Episode 1 don't count. Um, one of Poe Dameron's X-Wings got blown up. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's true. At but the beginning of Force Awakens. A different color. Like the next movie. <laughs> well, no, I mean, right. yeah. uh, what are we counting as a main character? Because we, I mean, we've watched plenty of characters explode in their cockpits or get destroyed or, or whatever. And I, the, the shot that comes to my, my brain though, even though it wasn't Ray's ship is when they're running toward the quad jumper and it just gets destroyed. And could you count that as Ray's ship and she has to go with the garbage? I'm not sure. No, because that's not really her ship. She was going to yeah. steal that, too. Yeah. Okay. Um, we got yeah. one last email here from Liam Howden from England. He writes in with theory about Grogu's age. 
He says maybe the Yoda species develop like frogs, egg, tadpole, froglet, frog. And it takes about four months for a tadpole to turn into a frog. Frogs live until they're roughly 10. Yoda was 900. This means Grogu was a tadpole tadpole for many years. He probably still has a tail in his teens. Uh, and also from an earlier discussion, Yaddle does speak like Yoda in the old comics or she did anyway so that's not canon anymore but um no i i kind of like that um that thought of how uh grogu's age is going on right like yeah no that's kind of how i looked at it yeah oh uh, actually though another ship what does luke's uh uh t-47 count from empire we watched that get shot up dak get killed it go down and then get smashed by an atat Oh, the snow speeder. I mean, yeah. The, I mean, I think it's iconic though. Iconic, yeah, like, it's iconically his ship. There wasn't really like, yeah. I, I feel like for it to have like any meaning and to be from a main character, it has to be like their ship that they have a history with and they've been using for a while. And the snow speeder just feels like a vehicle that like the rebels were using just because that's what they had to use to yeah. go around on Hoth. Okay, I'm just I'm racking my brain thinking about it. And then the other closest thing I can come up with is. <laughs> the the falcon getting shredded on solo in solo but that's not destroyed it's just damaged severely (laughs) yeah i feel like though like if the falcon had been destroyed that would have counted but like razor crest there's no way to rebuild that it's like a different thing entirely okay um I'm actually surprised there isn't anything from like the animated shows of that caliber, but I guess. Oh no, uh, Anakin's ship, the Twilight, got destroyed, and that was his sort of signature ship from the Clone Wars movie. And through, I don't think it got destroyed until season six, um, and it got destroyed pretty dramatically. Okay, let's get into it. Let's uh, <laughs> give our brief thoughts. On this episode is the Mandalorian chapter 16, the rescue. Uh, <laughs> I don't even know where to begin. Brad, what are your thoughts on this episode? Uh, well, this episode was insane, uh, to say the least. Um, first of all, I was just surprised by how quickly they, just, they got into the action of it all. Like, just starting with a chase, and it's it's like, it's a, you know, a fast run all the way through the entire episode. It's just almost all action like it, this and this episode is like basically it's just a the third act of a movie uh for this entire episode They're, like they waste no time getting into it and so it's so fast-paced uh the action is great second unit director sam hargrave um <laughs> uh, and that is true he actually was the second unit director in, in this i episode. will say though the season two with him as second unit director i do feel like the action has been up with a couple notches yeah for sure and it's and i um peyton i think having peyton reed back you know helps to uh as the ant-man franchise director and um interestingly enough i think some of the fighting uh choreography between um the mandalorians uh specifically bo katan um and koska reeves uh kind of feels like ant-man and the wasp fighting except without the shrinking and growing um yeah but uh but yeah it's it's a there's a lot happening in this episode and uh, I have some I, some nitpicks and things that I want to talk about, but I don't want to get into those until we get to that point in the episode later on. So I'll, I'll, I'll reserve those for later. But for the most part, it was a thrilling episode, um, a great finale, and 
Uh, it definitely raises a lot of questions as for like the future of the series and um, I guess this, this this era of Star Wars in general. So, yeah. Yeah. You mentioned Peyton Reed. I'm surprised that this episode didn't have more comedy. It felt like a lot less comedy than the Frog Lady episode that he directed this season. But um, I just yeah, feel like this he, he, he didn't have time, probably. <laughs> yeah. No, it was like a like you said, it just kept like it was just so fast paced. It uh, this episode was amazing. Like this, it was like I was jumping up and down with excitement how awesome it was while I was watching it. And like this episode made me cry. It's uh, I have a, two minor complaints about this episode, which I'm sure one of them is I share with Brad. I haven't talked about it, talked to him before this, but I'm sure maybe all three of us have the same common complaint of one of them. And the other one's a minor one, uh, but we'll get to that later. Uh, Brian, what did you think? So on first viewing, I felt a little muted about the episode. Like it was just like, and and I couldn't tell if that was because I was watching all of this wash over me and not really comprehending what I was looking at. <laughs> but on the second view through, I kind of saw a lot of the wisdom in some of the nitpicks that I had the first time through. Um, one of the things that I think I expect out of Star Wars finales are sort of in the big epic finale of a Star Wars story, you've got usually three or four concurrent storylines all racing toward a head, and they're all playing out in different places. And this episode really brings in a laser focus, and I think the first time I was a little taken aback by that, and then the second time I watched it, I really found the wisdom in, in why it was assembled the way it was assembled. And and yeah, like I think we could talk about that um later as we as we get through the episode but uh i really enjoyed it like you i cried a lot um it was something i mean obviously if you listen to us babble about the show and have for the last eight weeks um you know that that you know some things that happened are things that we predicted but i still didn't even actually think that it was going to happen yeah (laughs) when you brought up some stuff we'll, we'll get there We'll, we'll yeah. get to that. Uh, I guess let's just jump in, right? Let's jump in uh, to the, our dissection of this episode. So the episode begins with a imperial <laughs> imperial shuttle being chased by Boba Fett's Slave One. And Dr. Pershing is inside. And uh, this is a vehicle we recognize from Empire Return of the Jedi. Return of the Jedi. This is a Lambda-class Imperial shuttle, and it's the same shuttle that brought Darth Vader to the uh, Death Star. It brought Palpatine to the second Death Star, and it's also the same sort of shuttle that brought Luke, Han, and Leia to the forest moon of Endor. Yeah, of course. Um, And so Fett hits them with an ion cannon. This paralyzes the ship, and he, he boards it. Um, should mention that the pilots here are Thomas E. Sullivan, who played uh, Malik on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and Luke uh, Banis, uh, who is best known for playing a serial killer in Wes Craven's final film. So there you go. Um, one of the pilots says Pershing is a clone engineer, a top-tier uh, target of the New Republic, and if they find out he's dead... Cardoon will wish she was on Alderaan. Uh, he recognizes her tear tattoo, which uh, and says that he was on the Death Star and watched her planet get destroyed. Uh, Cardoon finally has like a good line here. Says which one? 
uh, speaking of, you know, w- which Death Star, um, he says, uh, destroying your planet was the small price to pay to rid the galaxy of terrorism. Yeah, no, I think I think uh, this episode is really the best use of Cara Dune. Uh, this is the best she's she's been able to do as far as delivery, uh, as far as Gina Carano. And this is the most meaty stuff they've given her as well. That exchange between the two of them about Alderaan was fantastic. She has some of the like, I think my favorite line later in the episode, too, um, with just her delivery, I think Peyton Reed finally brought her um to to another level like i don't know i just love that scene with her and the pilot no i agree it was the first time i actually (laughs) i I really liked her in this this series um okay so dune is had enough he she shoots him uh we finally get the chapter title which is the rescue so now this season every episode has begun with the seems like john favreau likes Having episode titles start with the word the um, slave one lands on a planet that has like these chimney like buildings that are billowing smoke. Uh, do we have any idea what this planet is? I couldn't find any reference to this planet. It was uh, it, it looks like just a, you know, your generic industrial planet. Yeah. Um, and also we see a ship. He lands the the ship, and there's a ship behind that I recognize from the animated shows. I think. Yeah, so that is, um, it's. I think it's a ship known as the Gauntlet. This was pre Vizsla's ship, even if it's not specifically the Gauntlet, which we have seen Bo-Katan pilot. Bo-Katan used this ship to find Ahsoka and bring her uh, on on Coruscant and or uh, on the Pike home world and bring her into the fight to retake Mandalore the first time. And it, even if it's not the gauntlet specifically, it is of the same class of ship. And we've seen plenty of these as well. Darth Maul flew one during uh, star Wars rebels as well. And uh, Ezra was in possession of a ship just like this after that, because uh, he took Darth Maul's um, after, after the confrontation between Maul and Obi-Wan. Yeah. So this wouldn't be Mandalorian if they didn't arrive at a new planet and go into into a cantina. And who do they find inside the cantina? We see Bo-Katan and Sasha Banks' character, Casca Reeves, which I can never remember the name. So I guess this is the point in the episode where we mention that Sasha Banks is a liar. Right? Yeah. I knew she'd be back. <laughs> I, I kind of hate, though, when, like, an actor or director has to lie to press. Like, why not just be like, I, I'm not allowed to talk about the my the future of my character in this series. Like, why say I only filmed one episode? Uh, you know, but, so in her, maybe, maybe with how things are going, maybe she thought it was part of season three, or maybe it was all shot yeah. like one episode. Right. Yeah, but then she would have seen the episode and be like, "Oh, that stuff's not in here," and seem, seems uh, and like she would. She also worked with two different directors. Yeah, no, she's a liar. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just don't like that. But okay, it's fine because I mean, you know I'd rather have her in the episode than not. So I, I'm I not. kind of I kind of like it when they lie, and then you're. <laughs> 
Like I, I really do. So I was like, oh, maybe, maybe the whole time you said that she said she wasn't in it. I'm like, well, maybe Bo-Katan's not in this episode. And then when we see her, it's like a pleasant surprise. <laughs> I don't know. It's just, I, I guess it's the journalist part of me. Like, uh, you know, Brad and I are writing about movies. It's like, if we can't trust the source of the, you know, information, then like, who can we trust? So uh, Brad, any thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just uh, it's probably just residual trauma from J.J. Abrams and everybody from Star Trek into Darkness telling us that Benedict Cumberbatch isn't playing Khan. <laughs> yeah, well, but he was put on like the spot. I, I feel I know a lot of people give J.J. a lot of crap, but like he was like literally put on the spot in an interview. I think it was like a video. Inter- I don't remember what it was, but like, I don't know. I don't know what I would have done if I was J.J. Abrams in that scenario, but like. I feel like Sasha Banks had other outs here. But anyways, she's not skilled in these ways. Like if the reporter was asking her in like a wrestling ring, I'd be like, okay, maybe she should have done better. But I just don't think this is her <laughs> wheelhouse, right? Yeah, like I wish the interview wasn't right. I'll tell you what, I'll come back when I'm good and ready. <laughs> <laughs> Loud cheers. Uh, <laughs> yeah, every we should all get a chance to interview Sasha Banks with the Mandalorian, but it has to be in the ring. It has to be wrestling character. Okay, um, let's move on. Uh, Mando asks for their help, and uh, Bo-Katan says, not all Mandalorian are bounty hunters. Some of us serve a higher purpose. Just kind of snobby here. Uh, uh, Mando fills them in on the child's abduction. Bo-Katan seems, like, concerned here for a second, uh, but she also doesn't believe that they'll get to Gideon, and Koska Reeves picks a fight with Fett saying, uh, I didn't know sidekicks were allowed to talk. So I guess there is some comedic dialogue in this. I shouldn't like um, say that there isn't any comedy in this episode. Um, and she says, you'll be talking through the window of a back-to-tank. So I, I guess, Brian, do, do we need to mention what that reference is to? I mean, back-to-tanks are the sort of medical devices that are common in the Star Wars universe. We saw Luke Skywalker in one after the Wampa attack in The Empire Strikes Back. But more importantly, could we take, well, me specifically, a little bit of a victory lap here? (laughs) Okay, what for? So uh, I have been taking a lot of crap for being very insistent that Boba Fett is not a Mandalorian. Both online and and in the comments in my my pieces and whatnot. And I've been saying he never... Did they already establish that? They established it before, and then when he showed uh, J- uh, he showed Din the chain code, everyone said, no, this is proof he's a Mandalorian. Uh, Din would never have let him have the armor otherwise. And then now we have uh, Katie Sackoff very specifically as Bo-Katan saying, you're not a Mandalorian, and him responding, I never said I was. Um I just I would like I would like the record to reflect that that Boba Fett is still not a Mandalorian. Okay, so is this the is this the Brian Young comeback tour where like you're right multiple times? I I, I mean I feel one coming later in this episode. Well, maybe, maybe. We'll see. Okay. Uh okay. So uh, Mando knows where Gideon is and um they say his light cruiser could be helpful to the efforts to restore the Mandalore. Uh, Fett believes the Empire turned the planet to gas, uh, talking about Mandalore. So we're getting a little bit more of like what we've heard in the galaxy of what has happened to that planet. I th- um, Did you Fett's... say gas or glass? Oh, I meant glass. Did I say gas? 
you said gas and i was like wait a second the subtitle said glass because i checked that and yeah no it they uh they must have done a number on mandalore (laughs) what does it even mean turning it into glass like when you heat something up like when you heat sand up enough it turns to glass like Ah, okay uh that's at least that's what it's now slippery yeah sure or very (laughs) jagged Okay, so uh, Boba Fett says the armor belonged to his father, and Bo-Katan says he's a clone. There's some interesting dialogue here. The the quote I've, she I've says, don't heard you, your don't voice you mean, a thousand of times. She says, "Don't you mean your donor?" Oh yeah, don't you mean your donor? Um, I've heard your voice a thousand of times. Mine might be the last you hear. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I like that a whole exchange. What did you guys think? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it I was, really, yeah. it was, yeah, it was a, yeah, a cool little verbal sparring match there. One that really like picks at you know, uh, Boba Fett's history as you know being being a clone and not really having you know a, a genetic father in in that way. Um, and it shows you know not just the disdain for, um, you know, him by not really being Mandalorian, but also some people obviously still being rubbed the wrong way by uh, the clones in general. I, I really a lot of people probably don't think of him as a clone. So it's interesting that we're kind of like bringing that into here because it's probably going to be explored more. Yeah, I hope so. Um, and I really think that this is sort of I think it's interesting that uh, we heard for a long time that they were going to be recasting Boba Fett and they were going to be going a different way because. Uh, you know, I, I just that churn of YouTube media uh, media. I'm using air quotes media um, <laughs> about how like they hated the prequels and they were going to retcon all of that. This was around Rogue One. Right. And my response to that was always like, if they're retconning the prequels, why did they bring Genevieve O'Reilly back to play Mon Mothma and Bail Organa? Like, why would they leave those but undo Boba Fett? And, you know, it, it never made any sense to me. And, and it's, I think, funny looking at the news cycles of the last five years uh, about how they're undoing all of this and then to see them embrace it specifically with Boba Fett so forcefully. Um, it's pretty satisfying. Well, I feel like the response to Star Wars is so secular in nat- nature. Like, you know, you mentioned like the them trying to retcon prequel stuff. And now, now we're hearing a lot of like people being like, they're going to redo the sequel trilogy and retcon the sequel trilogy and stuff like and then you know there's people that hate star wars now now star wars people are loving star wars again like it just feels like it's just like a cycle that keeps on oh yeah it's like poetry it rhymes (laughs) uh okay so craze does some pro wrestling moves against fett before bo katan breaks it up and says uh they will help in exchange for gideon's ship uh she also wants um the Darksaber, which will cut through anything but Beskar, which seems like a setup to me. Um, and also, uh, Bokatan mentions that um, she asked Mando to reconsider joining their efforts, which he says he will think about. Um, Mando says that if they help him rescue the child, they can have whatever they want. And off they go. Pershing reveals that Gideon's leg cruiser has dark troopers on board. A third generation that is pure droids. They've got they've taken the the one aspect out of it that was not good, and that is the humans. Um, they're kept in a cargo bay, charging. 
the, does anybody but me seem like that's an ill-advised placement to put the dark troopers? Like, shouldn't like there'd be dark troopers stationed all around the light cruiser, like in different like charging ports, like my Roomba, like so that like they can activate at any point when needed, and not like well, next there's to the a airlock. line. There's a line later in the episode that makes me think that there's a very good reason for it. It's when Gideon offers Din a friendly piece of advice that he just needs to assume that we need to assume he knows everything. And I'm sure there's some good reason for it. I can't think of what it is, but I'm sure Gideon has thought it through. I mean, it's yeah. and it's I, I mean, it makes sense in the way that like, I mean, the, in the cargo area, you want them to be able to leave the ship easily to be, you know, activated and put out there. And as we see later in this episode, it doesn't really matter that that's where they're located because they can pretty easily just come right back to the ship. <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, Dan's little maneuver marginally disrupted them. <laughs> okay, so Book 10 lays out the plan, almost like a cutscene before the final boss level in a video game, is what it, it, it almost read to me. Uh, they will act as misdirection, allowing Mando to get to the child. Uh, as I saw it as a video game, Brian, you saw it as a another reference to an old western. Um, yeah, and and the Clone Wars too, like like um, with the well, it, I, and the dirty like I don't know. This whole plan felt like the Dirty Dozen to me as well, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, I really felt like um, Bo-Katan's section with their misdirection felt like episodes of the Clone Wars. And in fact, like even the way Katie Sackhoff is holding her guns throughout the whole episode is like a shot for shot recreation of how Bo-Katan does on the shows. But yeah, I think um, Din and um, Gideon feel very, even just saying those names and saying, saying it that way <laughs> feels like an old Western. Right. And I, yeah. I, I think back, have you, have you two read the Raiders of the Lost Ark transcript, the story transcript? I read it a long time ago. Um, I probably read it way too often because I think it's just like the pinnacle of like watching creative minds at work, even when there's really problematic stuff in there, but I would recommend going back to watch it. But Steven Spielberg has this, By the way, this, you, yeah. you, we, we should mention what this is because some people might not know what you're talking about. Okay. So there's a transcript of the initial story meetings for Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, Lawrence Kasdan. Is anybody else there? No, just so the just the tra- just the tape recorder. Yeah. And they were in a room basically coming up with the idea of what Indiana Jones is. And you can read it online. I think it's also in that Indiana Jones making of book by uh, Rinsler. And it, you basically get to see the creative process that like you were there in the room when Indiana Jones was created basically. Yeah. And, and there's this exchange that Spielberg has with, with um, as Spielberg and Lucas have with Kasdan, where they're talking about how their favorite villains are the, the Sydney green street style ones where there's that moment where uh, Spielberg describes his favorite villain as they're trying to come up with Belloc and how Belloc and, and Indy would interact is that he wanted him to be a Sidney Greenstreet sort of character that when you pulled a gun on this character, instead of responding with force, you know, the Sidney Greenstreet would sort of take off his hat and say like, oh, you disappoint me, my boy. And that's really the feeling I got out of this scene with Gideon and Din, where it's like they're actually having this conversation. And for a second, you think that maybe maybe he will just let him go. Um 
but uh, you can see the that those strains of DNA from like Lucas and Spielberg and their interests kind of coming into this stuff. Or maybe I'm reading too much into that. I'm want to do that now and again. <laughs> no, I like how you connect the dots. Um, okay, so the plan here is for Fett to be chasing the four women in the shuttle, allowing them to make an emergency lander on the light cruiser, uh, landing on the light cruiser. Um, Puppet uh, Fett says, "Power those shield, power up those shields, Princess. I'll put on a good show." Does Puppet Fett call everybody Princess? What's going on here? I think that's just her because of her claim to the throne, right? Okay, and and she's the sister of a duchess. Yeah, yeah, I guess that makes sense. Okay, so the shuttle requests emergency docking as it's being pursued by the Slave One. Gideon launches Tie Fighters. We have this really cool sequence of TIE fighters being launched into space. Have we ever seen this angle before? I don't think we have. Uh, No, we haven't seen one of these light cruisers in a whole lot of action before. This is a ship that's much smaller than a Star Destroyer. And so it doesn't have the sort of standard complement that we're used to. I think maybe the closest we've seen is in Rebels, the sort of aircraft carrier style ships. Um, that are in in between the size of the light cruiser and this, uh, and the Star Destroyer. But this is the first time we've seen a ship like this, which I think makes it a really good choice for them to have used. Um, On a story level, it kind of really shows you that Gideon isn't, uh, you know, he's clawing his way up to the top and he has the Dark Troopers and he has the Dark Saber, but he doesn't have even just a Star Destroyer. We know that, that Star Destroyers were rare after the Battle of Jakku, especially Super Star Destroyers. I believe there were only four and and the first order made off with one uh, with Ray Sloan after the battle of Jakku. And um, so this just kind of gives us something new. We haven't seen visually before. And it tells a story about how Gideon isn't actually as high and mighty as we might want to think he, he, he could be. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of like a battleship, how it launches like the jet planes off a battleship or uh, speaking of battleship. Um, we know John Favreau is a big fan of Battlestar Galactica. He used like some of the same uh, it, it, Battlestar Galactica. I remember him at Comic-Con saying how Battlestar inspired some stuff from Iron Man of how Iron Man, like they shot the flying in Iron Man. And I remember in Battlestar, they had like these things would launch the, uh, the Vipers. Those things are, yeah. The, yeah, the- exactly. <laughs> Um, okay, so anyways, enough with uh, inspiration here. Um, the shuttle makes a run for the hangar bay and makes a crash landing. The quad of women uh, take out stormtroopers. Gideon activates the dark troopers. And here we get the cool techno music with dark troopers being activated, which I think is maybe one of the boldest tracks that um, Ludwig has done in this whole series. Yeah, I, I love that. I, really I love this. It. This Dark Trooper theme is really cool. I'm really excited to pick up the uh, the part two of the soundtracks. Um, they released part one, which was the first four episodes, and presumably sometime in the next week or two, they're going to be releasing this half. And, and that's one of the tracks I'm really excited to get. And the entire, like this whole episode and all the stuff from the Ahsoka episode are some of the best music. And, and I did look up how to pronounce his name. It's uh, Ludwig... Uh, Jorensen. Jorensen. Yeah. Um, I, I do agree with you that the second half of the season had the better score. Not that the first half was bad. Yeah. Yeah. But like more of the same. Um, okay. As planned, 
with everyone distracted, Mando makes his quiet entrance, and we do see walking the hallways of Gideon's ship a familiar droid, uh, an RA-7, I think it is, otherwise known as the Death Star droid who's on the ship. We saw them in uh, Season 1, Chapter 7. Uh, I don't think this means anything, does it? No, these are the same sorts of droids that um, are just on Imperial ships a lot. AP-5 was one of these, if you remember him from Star Wars Rebels, voiced by Steven Stanton in his best uh, Marvin the Android voice. Um, And uh, yeah, they're just all over the Empire and they're protocol droids. So the team of women take out some troopers on the catwalk. It's never a good thing in, in Star Wars to be on a catwalk. Uh, they, they fall off the catwalk to their death in outer space or maybe a force field. I don't know. Um, Actually, and, yeah, that, you do see him fall through the force field. And that was kind of interesting because uh, you, you see him, the, the just the body go through and then the force field come <laughs> back around. And so it's kind of cool to see that happen. Yeah. And also right now, at this point, we're getting like this the Mandalorian theme, but it's like, like, like with some like violins or string instruments or something. It's something I haven't heard before. I think in this series, I like it. Um, and also the dark troopers are powering up. It feels very Iron Man esque. Um, the, the women take out some more troopers in an action scene that I think has like many fun obstacles. And is this what you're talking about when, uh, Brad, when you say, it feels kind of like Ant-Man action. I felt like this scene is what you were talking in particular. No, I, well, I mean, because yeah, the, the jetpack stuff, yes, it more it was more so in the cantina with like the the, leap, the leaping around and flipping and using the jetpack to yeah. like pr- propel and stuff like that. Um, but I mean, the, the fighting style of the Mandalorians of, of Casca and Bo-Katan in general felt, um, feel very much inspired by Ant-Man and the Wasp. Yeah. Another thing I've realized now is it takes... A long time for these dark troopers to activate seems um not the best <laughs> built uh program in the by the imperials but well, whatever gideon knows everything except for when people are actually like trying to board his ship in a way that could be problematic <laughs> well I, honestly it looked like he didn't did know because like just the yeah. way he was watching what's happening he was just waiting to see like and just and just like okay like waiting to make his next move essentially yeah, oh, but and, Brian, Brian's probably trying to say that he should have activated them beforehand. Well, oh. <laughs> yeah, no, but on the other hand, the way he played the situation, though, uh, ultimately worked out or would have worked out for his favor had not a, a Jedi arrived. And I think that was yeah. likely his plan because he wanted to uh, either kill them all or create that strife between Din and Bo-Katan. Okay, so Cardoon's blaster is jammed. Fennec covers her. Uh, Mando gets to the Dark Trooper hangar just as they are about to deploy, and he shuts the gate and stops them, except for one of them is able to get out and cause some real damage to him, slamming his head into the wall. Uh, Mando is able to use his gauntlet igniter to get out of the situation and uh, relents to using his whistling birds. Um, When that doesn't work, he uses uh, his Beskar staff, and that does does the trick. Um, he then hits the evacuation doors, flushing all the troopers out into the, out of the back of the ship into space. Um, while I was watching this, 
were, were you guys like thinking the same thing I was? I was like, wow, they built up these troopers and literally just like flushed them out into space and that's it? Uh, no, because I I immediately remembered that they flew down from the ship down to uh, uh. to yeah to the planet to grab uh, Grogu, and so I knew that they're just like <laughs> okay, so they're just gonna come back in a little bit probably. Yeah, I was very much in the same boat. Those dark troopers sort of historically have been also zero G sorts of troopers. And, you know, they will and they're droids, right? Like, and we've seen yeah. lots of droids fighting on the outsides of, of spaceships. So I thought that at best it was going to be a, a delaying tactic. Um, but there was nothing. I think one of the best things about this episode is watching that dark trooper just punch din and his helmet into the bulkhead over and over and over and again and i know din like has beskar armor on but that can't have felt good yeah like he probably has several concussions (laughs) (laughs) it depends on what sort of stabilizing influence there is on the inside of that helmet i mean i i can't imagine it's that good because when he when he got blown up uh in the first season he he had blood all over his face so he i i'm surprised he didn't take more of a beating under that helmet once once we see him later yeah that's yeah. a good point i'm surprised he didn't have some like blood or something on his head at that moment maybe that would have distracted from the emotional beat there yeah and then then grogu okay. would have would have like grabbed some of his blood and licked it off of his hand <laughs> <laughs> That that sounds like a very Peyton Reed thing to do. Just saying. Um, okay, so the the team of women disarm the weapon system. Uh, Mando takes out some troopers, choking one with his staff to death. Uh, Mando finds Grogu handcuffed in the brig with Gideon holding the dark saber over his little body, and Gideon asks Mando to drop his blaster, and he complies. And this is when Eric Gideon, uh, the line that you've mentioned, a friendly piece of advice. Assume that I know everything, including that Mando's wrist launcher has fired its one and only um, salvo. Salvo. Yeah. Um, So Gideon is two steps ahead here. Uh, He knows that Bo-Katan and her boarding party are on the bridge looking for him in the Darksaber. He explains... Whoever wields the sword lays claim to the Mandalorian throne. Uh, He's doing some monologuing here. And um, Mando makes a deal saying he can keep the sword if he gets the child. Gideon is okay with this deal because he's gotten everything he wanted. He studied the blood that has rare properties, quote, that have the potential to bring order back to the galaxy, unquote. Um do, do you guys think that Mando was actually willing to make a deal here and betray bo I mean, uh, if nothing else, he would have been uh, willing to make the deal as far as getting out of the room. But I don't think Din actually – maybe he was that naive, but why would Gideon just let him go? What do you think, Brad? Yeah, I feel the same way. I think he was just willing to do what he needed to in that moment to get the get Grogu and then would have dealt with Gideon. Because, I mean, why does he have to keep his word to somebody like Gideon? I do feel like season one, Mando, I would say I would agree with you guys. But now I feel like this whole belief system that he's entered in, like his whole creed, I feel like there's some cracks in it. And he's willing to make we, – we've seen that he's been been willing to make some – major exceptions and we'll see later in this episode (laughs) 
Um, so maybe, you know, the child is the of the utmost importance here. I don't know. But uh, I guess we'll never know because uh, Gideon allows Amanda to take the child uh, if he agrees to leave the ship immediately. Of course, this deal is in bad faith and Moff Gideon tries to take him out with the Darksaber. Uh, I guess um, here's another question I have for you guys. It's like, if Gideon knows so much, didn't he know that the Darksaber wouldn't go through Mandalorian's Beskar armor? Well, I mean, he needed to attack him somehow, yeah. right? If he was, if, if he, Gideon's point there isn't to murder Din Djarin. It's to cause um, that rift between he and Bo-Katan. Although yeah. I, th- I think that if push came to shove, if he did end up killing the Mandalorian, he probably would have been fine with it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But I think his broader point was to rob Bo-Katan of that. But I do think if I'm playing the chess and I'm in the game as Gideon, I think I telling uh, telling Mando to drop the blaster, I would have been also like, drop your helmet. Take off your helmet. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, obviously, we got foresight being 2020 here. Uh, but I, I think I, I don't know. I think there's something to that. Okay, anyway, let's get, let's get back to this. Um, there's this cool fight sequence with Mando fighting Gideon with the Beskar staff and Gideon with the Darksaber. And there's this awesome shot with um, the Darksaber going through the wall of the ship. Uh, what did you guys think of this whole uh, battle? Yeah, this was awesome to see. You know, I mean, uh, that shot of the Darksaber cutting through the ship and everything was uh, cool. And, I mean, the, at this point, the Darksaber... I, I, I feel like it has a chance of becoming cooler than a lightsaber just because uh, not only of its unique look, but I think it's just, I don't know. There's something about it that's a little bit more uh, coveted since there are infinitely more lightsabers than there are dark sabers. Um, so yeah, this, it was just a, a very well choreographed fight and it was, it was, it's, it, I always like seeing a, a lightsaber fight that isn't just lightsaber against lightsaber and the, you know, Mando had, um, uses the staff in a, a way that is much different than just having, you know, a, a sword duel. Yeah. Well, this season has had a bunch of uh, lightsaber versus staff duels. We had That's Ahsoka true. versus the staff. So, yeah. But different people, different uh, different um, techniques, I guess. Okay. So, Mindo is able to knock the weapon away from Gideon and has him at the end of his staff, but doesn't kill him. And that's when Gideon says... You're sparing my life. This should be interesting. Uh, Mando wielding the Darksaber brings his prisoner to Bo-Katan on the bridge. Gideon asks, why doesn't Bo-Katan kill Mando now and take the saber? Uh, Gideon says that Darksaber belongs to Mando now. He tried to present it to... Mando tries to present it to Bo-Katan, but she can't take it. It must be one in combat. Quote, the Darksaber doesn't have power. The story does. Without the blade, she's a pretender to the throne. So I have two questions here. Why didn't Bo-Katan explain these rules to Mendo before this assault, number one? And number two, wasn't, um, didn't on Star Wars Rebels, Sabine Wren hand over? Yeah. So this is, thing to Bo-Katan are, and she to answer, it? to answer your two questions first, um, if you go back and rewatch the episode, 
um, Bo-Katan is almost singularly focused on requiring everyone to make sure that Gideon is, she's the one Gideon surrenders to. Right. Um, yeah. Every, Although every she scene didn't talk she's to in, Mando about that. Yeah, no, she did. Uh, she did in the, the scene in the bar, she, you know, when they were talking yeah. about like, that's fine. Gideon is mine though. He has to surrender to me. And as they're explaining the plan, she reiterates it. And then, uh, you know, and especially when she's like, he'll be on the bridge. Why he'd be on the bridge, who knows? But uh, she was very confident about that. I am confused about the idea that it has to be won by combat, though, because you're right. In Star Wars Rebels, uh, Sabine Wren came to Bo-Katan and said, um, take this. But I think the shade of gray here that that people are going to lean into, and I think Filoni's probably going to lean into, is that it's right. Like Gideon is right. It's the story that matters. And when Sabine Wren came and tried to present it to Bo-Katan, she said, and and this was them dealing with a whole bunch of Jedi as well, especially with Ezra and and Kanan, said the Force gave this to me to give to you. And that's part of the story, right? Like the force is working to make sure that Bo-Katan is doing that. And that was in front of all of the other Mandalorians. If she shows up and said, hey, this guy was rescuing his kid and handed me the, the dark saber again. That story isn't as uh, amazing as we liberated, uh, you know, we, we liberated Mandalore from the threat of these Imperial sympathizers and the force brought the dark saber to me. And, I get the idea that maybe she doesn't want to lie about that or embellish that. Um, mm. And I think that's probably the gray area that's going to, that's going to lie in. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Uh, it just seems weird that Filoni, uh, who's involved in this and was involved in rebels. I don't know. It just, well, doesn't it seem we weird? We said, we said exactly the same thing about the no helmet thing, the no taking yeah. the helmet thing off. And and we were all like, well, that's weird because in Rebels they did this, and we spent the whole time until they went like, oh, he's a religious zealot, and I'm guessing, I mean, season three, I think presumably for the Mandalorian is going to give us the fight to take back Mandalore, and I presume that that conflict is going to be one of the central ones resolved, and it's, I wonder if Bo-Katan is going to be the heavy. In that in for the rest of the series, rather than an ally. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Okay, so the race shields have been breached and they're being boarded. How many life forms? None. Reveal that the dark troopers are here. Uh, Gideon reminds us that Mando has had his hands full with just one of them, and how are they going to handle a whole platoon of them? Uh, Mando assures Grogu that he's going going to get him out of there. Grogu looks very drowsy. Uh, how much blood do you think they took from Grogu? A lot. I mean, <laughs> as much as they could have. I'm wondering how much blood do they need for their evil plans? Because it seems like Gideon was willing to lose. Do you think that was a ploy that he was willing to lose Grogu at that point? Do you think they still need him for their purposes? Yeah, no, I think they probably still want him for whatever that might be, whether it's cloning that that to deal with Palpatine stuff or whether it's cloning to deal with Palpatine's kids stuff or whether it's cloning to I don't know. I I can see someone very easily going like, wait, Grogu has force healing 
and it seems like they're doing this weird healing thing and this cloning situation and Grogu's actually raised grandpa also. So uh, I don't necessarily believe that, but I could very easily see somebody connecting those things. But yeah. uh, any anything is possible. Okay, so the Dark Troopers are here. And by the way, the, their theme, I want to say again, is awesome here. It's one of the boldest new additions to the season. Uh, the troopers begin punching their way through the bridge wall, slowly making progress. The tension really kind of r rises here. The alarm is beeping. A lone X-Wing has arrived. What did you guys do when when, when that moment hit? Like, what, what, Brad, what was your reaction? I mean, my immediate reaction was, okay, well, this this has to be Luke, because who who else is cruising around the galaxy in an X-Wing by themselves, you know? I mean, we haven't seen any other Jedi, you know, in, um, you know, rebel ships like that, and Luke is, you know, known very well for sticking with his, his X-Wing. Although, uh, um, I, one of my friends said that he noticed that it looks like when the X-Wing flies in that you can't see the Red 5 designation, uh, so I don't know if they intentionally obscured that, or the detail just isn't there or what? Well, we did see some people in some, some X-Wings earlier this season and last season. So, I mean, there was the possibility that it could just be a lone New Republic pilot, right? Marshall coming to save. So, I, I, I had two reactions simultaneously. One I actually said out loud and the other one I said in my head. Um, and you can tell on what sort of like base level my, uh, my mind operates on when I'm watching Star Wars for the first time. But, uh, what I, what I said in my head was Jeff Goldblum's voice repeating, you did it. The crazy son of a bitch did it, uh, from Jurassic Park. <laughs> and then what yeah. I said out loud was, holy shit, it's Luke fucking Skywalker. And, uh, my kid, Anakin was just like, we shut up and watch dad because he'd already watched it. He stayed up all night to watch it, then oh, wow. insisted I got uh, got him up to see it again to watch with me. And he already knew. And he was just uh, telling him to shut up because he's a jerk. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think I instantly knew. I was like, oh, my God, they're doing this. And then what I did is I hit like the button to see how lo much longer was on the episode. Because I was like, I was convinced that it was going to be not like you know, that we were going to get to the point where we like just see a reveal of him at the end and then cut to credits or something. And I noticed that like there were still like 15 minutes or so, so some, some long amount of time still to go. And I was like, oh, crap, they're going to like like this is going to be a thing. OK, um, so Grogu starts cooing. He senses someone has answered his call. The dark trooper stop punching on the other side of the door. We see someone and a black hood and cape approach. We see this at first they're black and white. I love how this is presented, by the way, guys. I'm not, I'm not sure if you guys did, but at first we see it like through this black and white footage on a monitor. So we can't tell. We see that as a lightsaber. We can't tell what the color is. And then we cut to like, you know, us being there in the scene and we see it's green and we see that black glove that's iconic. And um, also worth noting that um the score here changes dramatically i think you you mentioned this in your review brian yeah um i think i think there's two things going on here i think we're supposed to um 
there's a lot of imagery coming in from Star Wars on the security cameras. I think we're we're supposed to feel very much like Obi-Wan watching Anakin take down the Jedi. And the music is slightly ominous and we're not necessarily sure what to think, right? And when we see the green, once we see it in person, we see much more uh, action evocative of Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon in Phantom Menace in their hallway fight against the droids, right? Um, even culminating in that shot where the blast doors open and you see the light of the lightsaber through the gas. Um, yeah. But I think it's supposed to be representative of the two primary forces weighing down on Luke Skywalker, both the dark and the light um, with his father and the influence of Obi-Wan. And, and maybe again, maybe, maybe that symbolism is just me reading into, into things too much, but the score really does. It's interesting. Like, I think a lot of people are going to say this is fan service. And I think that part of the reason we can say that it's not, fan service is the music i think the music is really what separates it and this music is about salvation for the mandalorian and grogu especially upon luke's departure where instead of that swell of music you would expect luke skywalker to be accompanied by that binary sunset music obi-wan's theme or the force theme itself but it's set to new arrangements of the mandalorian uh the mandalorian's theme and it's done in like a more like John Williams that oh, yeah. like, uh, traditional way. Yeah. So and th- this piece of music reminded me of a mix between what what Jorensen has do- been doing with The Mandalorian, but also a little bit with what John Williams did with Order 66. Yeah. Um, and Luke is taking out all these dark troopers with no effort whatsoever. He's using the force. He's using a saber. Um, I know, Brian, I think you're going to hate the, my comparison of this but this really felt to me like that final scene in rogue one where we're seeing what? darth vader board the trip i don't ship. i don't think that that's unfair i think it, it it is supposed to be evocative of that and of darth maul in his hallway right and i think that's part of that push and pull between the the dark and the light um yeah. and i also think that this that scene specifically is why they introduced the stormtroopers or the dark troopers because if Luke was cutting down stormtroopers, I think that would be way less heroic. And it would be Luke would be calling for them to surrender. But because they were droids, this is the same reason uh, George Lucas decided to use droids for the prequels. Um, yeah. Because I think that, that that choice ultimately is about Luke not having to have those compunctions about murdering all these Imperials. Yeah. Uh, so Gideon gets his hands on a blaster, uses it to shoot at Bo-Katan. I don't think he... Does he not hit her? Because we see her later on, and she's fine, right? Um, I, I, it, it just it hit her, her Beskar, so it was just okay. like, it was a distraction. Yeah, and he also tries to shoot Grogu, but Mando jumps in front of him like a Secret Service agent, deflecting the blast. Uh, when he realizes his time is numbered, he tries to commit suicide, but is unable to do that because Cardoon knocks the blaster from his hand. Um, more dark troopers wait as the elevator approaches, containing the Jedi, opens, and the Jedi takes out them out in heroic fashion. He even crushes one of the dark troopers with the Force. Yeah, this was one of the ones where I felt like it. That, that's where I re- really uh, started even more so to remind me of the Vader scene in Rogue One because he didn't have to do that. Like, it would have been easier uh, and... 
less messy for him to just slice through it with his lightsaber, but he took the time to be like, no, I'm going to squeeze the shit out of this one. Yeah. Um, it, it reminded me too of, and, and again, that, that, that Vader stuff in revenge of the Sith, where Vader crumples all of the droids and units around him when he first gets out of the suit in the black um, costume. And I think Luke, I think this is reinforcing that idea that Luke is walking a line and spends a lot of time walking a line. And that's ultimately why he walks away in, uh, as we see in the last Jedi. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but I was like jumping up and down giddy. This was like so awesome watching this, but at the same time, I was also, it also occurred to me that like, this could be seen. I know you mentioned the word fan service before Brian, but I could I could also see the angle that Filoni is giving the the fandom menace, the hated you know uh, the, the Last Jedi, what they wanted from Luke. Does, does any of that like hit you? I think that that would have a lot more weight if he was cutting down stormtroopers. I think putting yeah. people in those costumes would be a lot different. I think they purposely established it so that he wouldn't be doing that. But uh, no, I, I don't think so. I think this Luke is so consistent with that that struggling Luke of Return of the Jedi, uh, who's teetering between light and dark. And this shows that it's not a one-time choice and that he has to make those choices every day because of the power and the responsibility he has. And where and I, I think there's also a contrast here between his scene of or his discussion about taking Grogu versus Ahsoka's where Ahsoka looks into him and said, nope, his attachment is so bad, like we're out of here. And Luke, um, the Luke in The Last Jedi refers to his arrogance and thinking that he could do this stuff. And here he's just like, yeah, let's do it. He just wants your permission. We're good to go, though. Like, I'm going to take this baby. Um, yeah. And I think Ahsoka's hesitation shows much more wisdom on her part than Luke has here. And so I think it's wholly consistent with the last Jedi, but the sort of mind of the fandom menace sort, I don't think it's going to parse that nuance anyway. So they'll take it however they want. Okay. So, uh, like you said, that Mando opens the blast doors, the smoke obscures the Jedi, really nothing but the blade of his saber. We have the Jedi walk in, remove his hood and it's revealed it is CG Luke Skywalker. So I'm guessing, Brad, this is one of the things you had a problem with? It definitely is. Uh, <laughs> it was mine, for sure. Yeah, because I, I, and I, I'm sure this has everything to do with the fact that this is a TV show and it's not a, a movie production, so their budget is not as big. Um, but like, when it's frustrating that they're doing something so bold as this, uh, bring you know a, a digitally de-aged Mark Hamill back as Luke Skywalker, and not really putting the time and effort into it to make it as best as it can be because we've seen the incredible de-aging that Marvel can do over and over again with uh, Kurt Russell and Michael Douglas uh, and Samuel Jackson and so many people and it looks incredible. And here we have the same problem that we did in Rogue One when they recreated Peter Cushing as Tarkin or Carrie Fisher as Leia, where it's it doesn't look terrible until they start talking and emoting. And then it looks like a video game cinematic character. Um, 
And like it's it reminded me of like how the effects in Tron Legacy haven't aged very well when it comes to young Jeff Bridges. Um, and so I just it I would I wouldn't say it's that bad. Well, no, it's, 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 not, it's not as bad as 2010, but it's, it's this, yeah. those same kind of the feelings. So it's like, OK, so this this is it's cool, but it's not as good as it could be or should be. But if any if one anything, it makes clear that this probably isn't something that they're going to be doing often like i guarantee you like we're not gonna see luke again for a while and if we do it will be very very sparingly because they can't keep doing this all the time with a young luke skywalker because if they were going to they would have done something like we've talked about before and cast sebastian stan as young mark hamill and done it that way and it's, it's interesting to think about the possibility of them doing that because if they would have you have to wonder if that scene would have carried as much weight if when they showed up, you were like, wait, that's Sebastian Stan. That's not Mark Hamill. Is he Luke Skywalker? Do they have to make him say that he's Luke Skywalker so everyone does officially understand that it's Luke Skywalker and not a different character? Um, so it's it's an interesting situation. And like, I don't know. I'm, I didn't hate it, but I was just, I'm just on the fence about how they pulled it off. The execution is, I think, what I'm not necessarily pleased with. Um, I'm fine with it in the story as it makes makes sense, um, but I just I'm not sure that that it's pulled off in the best way. Brian, your thoughts? Um, it didn't pull me out. It didn't pull me out at all. The thing that that sold it for me was the voice, and that was the thing that sort of shocked me the most. I was like, okay, fine. We've got the the de to the CG Luke Skywalker. That's fine. Um, or the the you know, the face app technology or whatever for it. But it was the voice that sold me. That was the thing that I needed more than anything, because I think that there's this there's this somber sadness to Luke Skywalker in the last half of Return of the Jedi that the first half is confident arrogance in that in that quietness. And the second half is is this somber sadness and this this sort of whisper behind his voice. And they got that so right. And I couldn't figure out i spent more time thinking about the voice and how mark hamill um was it mark hamill or, or was it someone else a sound alike or something like that because the voice is the thing i needed to have right more than anything and as far as this goes like it it doesn't really bother me i go back to i don't know i was always really annoyed by the the fights in fandom about like it's CG or it's a physical effect or whatever. And I always go back to um, George Lucas's quote from, from star Wars to Jedi when he spe- when he says a special effect is a tool, it's a means of telling a story and a special effect without a story is a pretty boring thing. And um, the story I got here was amazing. And even if the special effect was only at 90% instead of a hundred, yeah. uh, I'm all in on the story and I never, you know, which is which is more lifelike, a puppet or a CG creature? They're both fake. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean it didn't it didn't necessarily take me out of the story. It was just something that I was thinking about after it happened, and I conti- as I continued to watch um, how he moved and you know emoted, and like it's one of those things where I'm now, if anything, I'm just more curious as to what they did to pull this off. Like, did they have? Mark Hamill do motion capture for this performance and then de-age him or, or put an entire entire digital model over his face? Did they actually have him record the lines for this and then fix it in post-production to make him sound younger? Because Mark Hamill is a gift, very gifted voice actor, but I'm well, not we, even... We have some answers here. Uh, the credits reveal... The, the credits credit, yeah, reveal... The, 
Okay, go ahead. That it's Max Lloyd Jones is the double for the Jedi. Um, he played Blue Eyes in War for the Planet of the Apes. He's a uh, character from, I mean, he's an actor from the UK. And we also know that Mark Hamill voiced Luke, or it doesn't say if he voiced or he played Luke. It just says, I'm yeah, guessing. it just says and Mark Hamill. So here's yeah. what I'm guessing happened is they did the same thing. My, the reason this became possible um, and if you think about the timeline of when Favreau would be writing, just to try to track the creative excitement about this, Favreau would have been writing this at the same time Rise of Skywalker is in heavy post-production, right? Yeah. Or even in planning stages of post-production or production as it were. And they have those scenes where they took, where Abrams took the, the faces of Leia and Luke and put them on the, the doubles uh, for the training sequence. And I could very easily see Favreau saying like, hey, ILM's already developing the technology to do that with Luke and Leia. Let's do that. Let's do that for the end of The Mandalorian. We'll build toward that. And um, that would make a lot of sense to me. But it, they took it a step further, which is something ILM is known to do. Like, it seems a little easier to mask it when it's inside the helmet, mostly under the blast shield and stuff. But um, what they did for that was they took actual footage and outtakes and all that kind of stuff and built a performance around um, footage from uh, like leftover footage and outtakes and stuff from Return of the Jedi. And I'm, I'm I'm assuming that they they sort of built the model off of that and used the deep fake sort of stuff with all of that footage on it. And it was just Favreau getting excited about um, the technology that that Rise of Skywalker was presenting and being able to to put luke skywalker from that specific same era in his show so uh, along with that i wonder uh about his voice because mark hamill is obviously a very gifted voice actor but i'm not sure that even he would be able to make his grizzled older voice sound younger like that um and and then also the piggyback of what you mentioned about like that that technology they developed one of the other reasons that i'm kind of frustrated by it and still not looking as good as it should is like there are deep fake videos out there made made on you know on the internet just for funsies uh, that have that have made better looking y young digital doubles than the ones that we've seen in, in movies like this, and so um, I, I just I don't know if there if there's a if there's a way like the, if they need to just do more work on it and or and like bridge the you know the technology that like deepfake uses with what ILM you know has has done with their own visual effects if that's even something that's technically possible um considering you know what whatever their workflow is like but like i don't know i'm i'm just i'm fascinated by by how they how they pulled this off and i think that even j just because mark hamill is credited as being luke skywalker i'm i wonder if he actually did anything for this because they also credited peter cushing as playing tarkin in rogue one and we know that didn't happen <laughs> Well, and that's part of why I think the credit could be the image, right? Like the image, especially yeah. if they took all the performance pieces from 1983, 35 millimeter, that's enough in their mind for a credit for it. Yeah. Well, I was also going to say, like, was, uh, didn't, am I correct in Mark Hamill? Didn't he like a few months ago say that he was done with Star Wars? He was never going to do another Star Wars movie or TV, like another Star Wars thing? I, I think he said something. I'm not sure. He's all he's always been very like, well, if they ask me, like no one's asked <laughs> me to do anything is is his thing. Mm -hmm. He's conspicuously been off of Twitter today, too. 
interesting. Um, you know, b- before we go on, let's talk about Luke Skywalker being in the Mandalorian. How amazing. Like, if you had asked me that at the beginning of the season, I would have thought that was impossible. If you had told me that in the first season that this show would have Luke Skywalker show up, I would be like, no way. <laughs> but Brian, you called this. Yeah, no, they they built it. They they yeah. built it, and it was. I, th- I think it was inevitable. They've been planting those seeds from uh, at least the second half of this season, but really, um, in smaller ways before then. But yeah, like I think Luke was the only logical choice. Um, Anakin kept telling me he's like, "It's got to be Mace Windu. It's got to be Mace Windu," and I was like. No, it's it's not going to be Mace Windu. It's going to be Luke. And he's like, they're never going to get Luke on this show. And I thought he was right. Like, I thought that they wouldn't go that far. I really didn't. I really I hoped they would because it was the most logical choice. But I figured they'd come up with something else because they didn't want to solve any of those problems or answer those questions like you like like you mentioned, Brad, where it's like, wait, is this really Luke Skywalker? Uh, is it some other Jedi that's just a different actor or whatever? Like. Um, I thought that it would pose too many questions for the audience that it wouldn't be instantly recognizable, but I think they, they balanced it really well. Now I, I don't, I do not come from this point of view, but I think, um, I don't know. I think this criticism is worth bringing up. I saw this tweet today on Twitter, uh, from Slimo. I don't know who Slimo is, but someone, it got retweeted into my feed and it was a quote from Michael Arndt. I'm going to give you the 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 quote. The trouble was a simple case of, of upstaging. The trouble was a simple case of upstaging. It just felt like every time Luke came in and entered the movie, he just took it over. Suddenly, you didn't care about the main character anymore because oh fuck, Luke Skywalker's here. I want to go. I want to see what he's going to do. So I wanted to bring that that up to you guys. Like, do you think? Now that you bring Luke Skywalker into this, like, does that does that upstage the Mandalorian story? Do we now like? I th- I don't know. I this next they, season, like, do I? What? I think they did it in the one way where it's like that they could. Who in the who in the galaxy could they hand Grogu to that's not the Mandalorian and have you feel comfortable with Grogu not being on the show anymore? Yeah. Yes, I agree with that, at least within the context of the narrative. But at the same time, uh, as an audience member, as a Star Wars fan, now I'm thinking to myself, oh, now I want to see what's going on with Luke and Grogu. Um, And so I don't really care as much about Mando anymore. Now, granted, they've done a very good job of setting up a a larger story for him to be involved with by having Bo-Katan be present and her wanting to, you know, bring Mandalore back and all that jazz. But so much of the Mandalorian has been about protecting Grogu and the relationship that develops between Mando and Grogu. And so taking Grogu out of the equation, sure, you you recognize, oh, he's with Luke, everything's fine, even though we've seen what happens with Luke Skywalker's Jedi students. But, you know, it's one of those things where now I just want to see how that story plays out, but I'm sure that that's not something we're going to get until we, you know, meet back up with Luke and Grogu, probably, you know, in a season or two yeah. or on Ahsoka. True. Okay. We're already an hour and a half or hour and something into this. So I, let's get back to the episode. Um, Mando has convinced Grogu to go with him. 
Uh, Luke says uh, Grogu wants Mando's permission. He is strong with the Force, but his talent without training is nothing. Luke offers to give his life to protect the child and says Grogu is, quote, not safe until he masters his abilities. Uh, Mando realizes what he needs to do and tells Grogu he must go with the Jedi. With this really sad moment, I'm sure we all cried here. Uh, Mando takes off his helmet, looks into the child's eyes. Grogu touches Mando's face. Uh, Mando tells him he needs to go, but don't be afraid. Um, I, I guess, well, should we even bring this up? Like, Mando doesn't, like, he used to be all about, like, you know, never taking off his helmet in front of people. But now there's so many people in that room. Does does he not give a fuck about that anymore? Like, is that now not his, a thing? His relationship with Grogu means more than all of those bonds. Yeah. Yeah. And I think he realized that in the last episode. And I think it was yeah. such a wonderful touching moment. And it was the right move to give Pedro Pascal that, that moment and that ability to actually show Grogu that love. I mean, it sucks. He walked off the show halfway through. Oh, that, <laughs> wait, that didn't, that didn't happen. Um, yeah, but, uh, <laughs> it was just, it was a beautiful, perfect moment. And if, if the Mandalorian ended here, I wouldn't feel cheated about the end of Din and Grogu's story. Um, because that was the emotional growth that this story was arcing toward for the Mandalorian. I will say before he took off his helmet, I did have just a funny, like quick thought because Grogu reaches his like little hand out and touches the helmet. And I was expecting, I was thinking about a, a reverse shot showing Mando's face and a tear flowing down his helmet. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, Okay. Back to the episode. Uh, thing happens that we I, I, I didn't expect to happen. In come into the room comes R two D two. What the <laughs> heck is going on in the show, guys? Like, what is what is this? I think that uh, we have Grogu cooing to R two, and like it's everything, right? Yeah, yeah it's a very no. cute interaction. I, I love that R two is there to like make Grogu feel a little bit more comfortable and like be like, hey, no, it's cool. Like, we'll be buddies. <laughs> well, and that that raises like it evoked more return of the Jedi iconography too, right? Like you remember all those t-shirts and all of the marketing around wicket facing off against R2. And it's like, Oh, it's the two cute guys from, from return of the Jedi. Like they, they framed that shot exactly like that as well with Grogu and R2. And it's like, they're just printing their, their own money with that, with that frame. Yeah, no, for sure. Okay, so uh, Grogu puts his arms up like he wants to be picked up. A little kid wanting to be picked up, which is so cute. Um, Luke picks him up, tells the gang, may the force be with you, before leaving with the child. Tears in Pedro's eyes. uh, Cut to credits. This is the first time in Mandalorian series history we get no concept art. uh, Number one. Number two, we're treated to a classical music score here. Um, I think I think this is part of that moment that Jorensen was building to, right? Like that shot of Luke holding Grogu and heading to the elevator plays to the Mandalorian's theme. And then we cut back to Mando's face in that classical score style. And then the wide shot that you almost expect to be the iris out, 
but then it cuts to the reverse of Luke in the elevator with Grogu and R2. And it's very reminiscent. It's, it's built exactly like the shots of Luke in the elevator with Vader in, in return of the Jedi. Um, and then when the elevator closes, um, I don't know. I, it, it feels symbolic that this is part of Luke's journey. He's just in elevators all the time, really. Um, <laughs> but, but no, that music, that music is haunting and really, really great seeing, seeing the music kind of stretch its wings that way where it's um, it's almost like the Mandalorian is joining the broader galaxy and the broader galactic conflict as the music comes a little bit more in line with everything we're used to in the galaxy. I wonder if that was the plan all along to like maybe have the music evolve over the series. I mean, that stuff was written before they started shooting season two yeah, and Jorensen uh, was probably getting privy to all of that. Well, maybe not. I don't know. I've done a lot of interviews yeah. with Kevin Kiner, who did the music for Rebels, and he's like, "It's very rare somebody will tell you actually what they're heading toward, so you're not quite sure as a as a TV composer because you're you're making music so fast." But maybe he did know. By the way, Mark Hamill just tweeted, and his tweet is, "Seen anything good on TV lately?" <laughs> Classic so, Mark Hamill. Classic Mark Hamill. Okay, let's talk about the after credit sequence. If you guys have not seen the after credit sequence, I would recommend you press pause on this podcast and pull up Disney Plus and watch it because, boy, we got an after credit sequence. <laughs> okay, so it starts with the twin sons pan over to Jabba's palace. We see Bib Fortuna now on the throne. Like, there's a throne on, like, where... Jabba used to sit. And he is uh, thick. Yes. <laughs> it, <laughs> he is thick. it should also be noted. So this this weirded me out because I the first thing I pause on in the credits is always to check who the ancillary players were uh, for my review and stuff. Yeah. And there was a credit on there for Bib Fortuna. And I was like, what in the hell did I miss him? Was he in the bar somewhere? And it was, was going to the same thing. I did it the same me. exact thing. <laughs> it was Matthew Wood who played him in, in Phantom Menace, um, who also did the voice of Grievous and all the battle droids and stuff. And I was like, I missed something. I clearly missed something in this episode. Why would why would Big Fortuna be on that planet? And then when I got that shot of the twin sons, I was just like, oh, oh. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it spoiled me as well. I, I probably shouldn't pause things my first viewing. I should probably just enjoy it. But I do that. Um, okay, so so Bib Fortuna somehow survived the destruction of Java's barge. That's believable. Um, and Matthew Wood is reprising his role here. Yeah, so he played Bib Fortuna in Phantom Menace. Yeah, interesting. Uh, so then some blaster fire happens off screen. Bib Fortuna tells. Um, someone to go investigate. Uh, do you want? Do you and, want a, a translation? I think this was. I spent way too much time going yes. back into the Hatties. Also, so, wait, hold, on, well, hold on. Before this, first of all, I would like to acknowledge that Bib Fortuna also refers to this character as Weak Way again. And so the the Weak Way species is really just getting a raw deal with how people treat them in uh, the yeah. galaxy. Well, and then he calls him slave scum in Hatties. Uh, that's what that's what Tobilia Noke is. That's something that Sebulba calls anakin in phantom menace oh yeah and then and then uh he says another phrase that i i sort of translate roughly to go investigate that 
And then he uses the word McClunky again, which is, uh, you know, essentially a threat that that uh, he'll die, you know, or this else will be the end of you or something. Yeah, this will be the end of you. Um, so, yeah, it, it's weird how how <laughs> how you can pick up Hatties after all these years. Yeah. Uh, thank you for that, Brian. That was good. Oh, I feel so, so nerdy. <laughs> I, w- I was just going to say, that's probably one of the nerdiest things I've ever heard. <laughs> it, 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 I love it. I love I love all this. Okay, so a Gamorrean guard rolls down the stairs, um, and uh, we see Fennec Shand. She shoots the chain, holding the Twilight Slave, setting her free. Uh, Boba Fett enters, and Fortuna... Tries to act happy about this, saying he's heard the rumors and stuff, and Fett has no time for this nonsense, kills him, takes the throne. Fennec is on the side drinking a blue drink. Spotchka. And, uh, yeah, Spotchka. I don't know. It's just like the way they're posing looks incredibly badass. And we cut to the title card, The Book of Bubba Fett, and then the reveal, coming December 2021. So, uh, so is this a, a, another series or is this a movie? I'm guessing it's I, a series, it, right? I would, I would guess that. Um, before we talk about that, though, can I drop one more Easter egg that was really hilarious that was in the background? Oh, yeah. So in the background, there's a grand there talking to one of the dancers from Jabba's Palace. This was Ristal Sant who was the dancer that Boba Fett was flirting with in the Return of the Jedi special edition. Huh. <laughs> um, which was funny to me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I think this is either, it's probably going to be a series um, because I think that it, it it's likely that it'll pick up some of the storylines that got left behind in the abandoned Star Wars Underworld project that was supposed to feature around the Underworld and Boba Fett. I yeah, so... Yeah, I'm pretty sure this is going to be a new spinoff series. Uh, some people have been speculating online um, that this will actually be the new season of The Mandalorian because when Disney's big investor presentation happened, Kathleen Kennedy announced that the third season of The Mandalorian would be arriving in Christmas of 2021, which is exactly when this says the Book of Boba Fett is supposed to arrive. And so some people are thinking, oh, okay, so the first two seasons of The Mandalorian are the book of Din Djarin, and then now we'll get a season that's the book of Boba Fett. But I don't think that they're going to let Boba Fett take over the Mandalorian as his series, you know, especially because the series is called The Mandalorian, singular. And he's you know? he's not even a Mandalorian yes, like, yeah, exactly. at all. Yeah, so to call the show that it seems disingenuous and to go on a complete departure from that when people, you know, are watching this show because of Mandalorian and, and also because of Grogu, uh, just doesn't seem like a good idea. It more, what I'm thinking is happening is that we're just going to have two shows that are running huh. concurrently about these two different characters, but just like the Ahsoka and Rangers of the New Republic series, they will probably have some kind of connection to the Mandalorian as it continues, and it will be part of that big culmination that all of these shows will be leading to. Hey Brad, and, I think you're. I think you're right. Hey, thanks. <laughs> yeah, I, I do think he's right. Um, it, we have talked in the past, like there's a, there has been a Star Wars TV project that's been filming in Manhattan Beach, right now. It's been filming for the last month or so, and no one knows what it is. They all we knew that it wasn't the Mandalorian, uh, 
I'm guessing, and we know it's not Obi-Wan, obviously. Um, I'm guessing if they have to hit the December 2021 date, then that they've probably already been filming for a month on this show. Yeah, this this has that's... to be what this has to be what that show is because the only other possibility is that it's Andor, but Andor is shooting in London. So in, um, unless Leslie Headland has somehow begun production on The Acolyte, uh, which I don't think is likely, um, then I think that this has to be the Boba Fett show because it, it has to be shooting now if they're going to release it in December of 2021. It's also interesting that, like, uh, before that investor's call, I, I believe there was a report that there was going to be 10 Star Wars TV shows over the next few years. And during the call, they didn't announce 10 shows, right? They announced, like, seven or so. I don't know. I don't have the number for me. I think it was, yeah, it was seven or eight. Yeah. Um, So this is another one of them. This is probably going to be, as Brad suggested, it's going to uh, connect with, you know, Marshals of New Republic, Ahsoka, and the Mandalorian. Or, sorry. Rangers. Well, I keep on thinking of her being a marshal. Yeah. Uh, People, a lot of people are saying like, like, no, if this is a new series and they would have announced it during investor day, it's like, no, that's what the surprise is about. You guys, it's a surprise show that nobody knew about. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was not. They held that purposely. Yeah. I mean, they're basically doing comic con like on a bigger scale, you know, everybody in the world at the same time gets the reveal um okay so uh so what is going to be the book of boba fett like i know you're saying brian that they could reuse some of the stuff from underworld and it's like you know him trying to build up um well i guess we've already set up cad bane right i mean uh, uh, cobb vanth sorry we've already set up cobb vanth being on tatooine so i'm sure that's going to be the rivalry there I think it very well could be. Yeah, I mean that would be that would be interesting. Although, like, I don't know, it would seem kind of petty for there to be a rivalry there. Like, what what's the, what's the rivalry? Like, why are they why are they fighting? So, well, I think the rivalry is is something I think Chuck Wendig sort of uh, built in the aftermath books, right? Where um, there's this power vacuum on Tatooine. Tatooine was the center of the Hut underworld cartel, which spanned the entire outer rim and had tendrils snaking into the Republic. Um, if Bib Fortuna was able to use his contacts as major domo of Jabba the Hutt to kind of keep that running. And now Boba Fett is taking that over. Um, the rivalry is also that that Cobb Vanth had a hutlet that he had captured and has Malakili, the rancor keeper raising to help fill that power void. Um, to do the same thing. Yeah. Ah, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I think would be, would be interesting is if not only was this like, uh, you know, Brian says is them bringing aspects of that underworld crime series that didn't get off the ground into, into this era of star Wars and following Boba Fett is if they also implemented, um, you know, a flashback structure where we were able to learn more about what happened with Boba Fett, uh, after, the, the Sarlacc or maybe even, you know, before that filling in gaps so that we actually get, you know, that, that fleshed out character that we once had in the expanded universe. Well, I think that book of Boba Fett title kind of allows that maybe. Yeah, no, know. we could go back and get some of those scenes ripped straight out of that underworld and see how Boba Fett maybe helped Jabba the Hutt. Um, 
really solidify his power base during the empire and how that went. And maybe, I, I mean, it opens the door to getting Fett's perspective on chasing Han Solo down an empire and what happened through all of that. Um, Wait a second. I, I just realized something. Yeah. They repainted Boba Fett's armor. If yep. they were to do a thing where they're showing different timelines in Fett's history, it would be very smart for them to repaint Boba Fett's armor so that we could easily tell which timeline yep. we're in. And they could bring Daniel Logan back to be the younger one. Mm. Interesting. Um, and and I would say without a doubt that whatever this is, we're going to get an explanation for Vader's no disintegrations line. <laughs> Probably. I mean, you laugh, okay. but that's just how they do things nowadays. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, let's talk about the Mandalorian because that's what we're here to talk about. Um, Enough now fake that Mandalorians. Yeah. Now that Bo-Katan has the light cruiser, what are they going to do with it? Um, well, this isn't the only ship that they've got, right? Uh, I think the reason Axe Woves wasn't there, uh, which I, I would actually, I forgot to comment on as we were going through the episode, like it seemed like he was conspicuously absent, but my guess is that he's off there, um, rallying more Mandalorians in that ship. And so they're going to have a small fleet to go back to Mandalore. Um, and take it back from whoever has it or defeat the Empire who um, is is preventing them from doing so. But it also seems like they're setting up for a confrontation between Mando and Bo-Katan because of the Darksaber, right? But I also think that they could... Pr I, there are definitely other ways for them to to resolve that as well, right? Like how? <laughs> they could they could get into some other adventure that that causes it to change hands. That's a good enough story for Bo to to do that. Or, um, I, I there there are definitely different ways to do it. I don't. I think one of the things that we need to be cognizant of is that Dave Filoni will literally do the exact opposite when we say, "Oh, he has to do this because of Y." He will do X anyway, and then make it work. For sure. Okay, so I guess the big question is what what is going to become of Grogu? Is like, can they really keep him out of the show? Like, he's such a money maker for Disney. Um, I doubt that we're going to see like Luke training Grogu as like a storyline, right? Like, it, like I I believe what Brad said to be correct. It like seemed like this is like we're not going to really see him much. So does Luke train Grogu to be a Jedi Knight? Like, what what happens here? What do you guys, Brad? What do you think? I think the next time we see Grogu, he is like a teenager. Um, he's got a long ponytail <laughs> and he walks in and he's got like a, a somewhat the Groot route. Yeah, the Groot route, some a somewhat deeper voice. And now he's he'll just be like just a cool Jedi kid. <laughs> I, I think that there's definitely options for Grogu as well. Like Luke is probably going to be working on this first generation of Jedi. There's going to be uh there's going to be, I mean, like uh, through the Paul Duncan's book, the the Tashin, like Star Wars archives, we know that George Lucas's intention for Luke was to go around and, and find a Jedi that had escaped Order 66. And um, that's still on the table, right? Like that part of that idea. And yeah. there are other Jedi that he could have train Grogu and go off as a Jedi Padawan duo and miss the entire um, 
the entire, uh, you know, execution uh, at Ben Solo's hands, you know, 20 years later, some 20 plus odd years later. And, uh, you know, it wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility for Din to also take Grogu back between then and, and that that later event at some point. And so I don't think Grogu's totally off the show. I think we'll probably check in with him somehow. Yeah, that's the big question that is going around Twitter is like, does this mean now that Grogu's being trained by Luke, does this mean that he's going to be at that that uh, that temple where Ky- Kylo and the Knights of Ren and all the people end up dead? Uh, I do want to remind everybody that that's almost three decades later, and I would think Grogu would not be a Padawan anymore at that point. Three decades seems like a lot of training. I mean, he's also 50 at this point. Yeah. <laughs> um, but Yoda was gonna... training Yoda was training other Jedi by a hundred so that's um, I think Grogu could be off on his own at that point and wouldn't necessarily need to be the at the Academy how long do you think they're going to keep Grogu out of season 3 before we actually see him it's tough, to, it's tough to say like it's you know there's so many so many things we talked about this season where we're like, oh, they'll they'll save that till the end, and then you know we we get it halfway through the season. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I feel like they do have to keep him away for a little while though, because the next time we think see him, I think that we do have to see some kind of major change in him, maybe, and show like what the result of what Luke has been doing with him and that kind of thing. So it's possible maybe the end of season three, but you know maybe not until season four. I definitely also- think if they go after Mandalore. This saves Din, and I, I. It sounds funny, but I think it's actually pretty accurate, right? Like it saves him having to find a babysitter for yeah. an invasion of a planet. Yeah, because for a whole he, season. Yeah, because it's it, it. It was becoming increasingly difficult for him to like traipse around the galaxy with with a uh, Grogu without handing him off to somebody for you know a half hour. Um, and yeah, and and for season four. A little bit of time can pass and Grogu could be uh, big enough that that the, maybe he speaks at this point and maybe um, the Mandalorian teams back up with him and Luke decides that his best place is there and that he wouldn't rob him of those attachments like Anakin did. And how how will people feel about a talking Grogu, though? Will he be as ador- <laughs> as adorable? What what will his voice sound like? Would he sound like Baby Groot? Would he you know, would he sound sound like an elementary school child? You know, it's uh, I feel like. I feel like once that happens, Grogu's going to use lose a little bit of that that adorability. I don't know. I think you could do a baby Yoda kind of voice. I don't know, but I do think there is. Brian brings up a good question, a good point here. Is traditionally in Star Wars, we do have these time jumps between like episodes, so it's very possible that the next Mandalorian season, like time has more time will have gone by than we did from you know the first season to the second season yeah like maybe maybe season four uh they'll be like mando will be a myth and someone (laughs) has has to go try and find him because grogu's in trouble i i I don't know how to answer that one (laughs) okay um okay so we we're all on the same page that we think mando's going to team up with bo katan to help restore mandalore right it makes the most sense. But at the same time, now I'm wondering, because they, we still have this whole Darksaber debacle that hasn't been sorted out yet. Yeah. So, so does season three, like, begin with them fighting? Or, like, how does, how's that going to work? 
don't know. And what what becomes of Moff Gideon? Because last we saw of him, he, he's in custody, right? I, he is going to go straight up Hannibal Lecter. And I'm not even kidding. <laughs> I like that theory. Uh, but who's going to have that? And, I, and I do. And you, it makes me wonder, too, because like there, there, there could be a setting of the stage for that by him saying, you should assume that I always know, you know, what's going on. And so maybe he has a contingency plan in place if he were to get captured. And so there will still be moving parts out there working for him and carrying out his commands as if he were still, you know, out in the galaxy. Damn you, Brian. I really think now that you said this Hannibal Lecter thing, I totally can, can't not imagine that. Like, I mean, he's there, he's captured. Yeah. He's captured by the new Republic and they're like going to him for information, but he's actually playing them and he's going to escape at some point and it's going to be devastating. So do you think they're going to introduce new big bad to the series? Will we see Thrawn? I think if I think they'll, they'll save, I, I think they'll save Thrawn for Ahsoka personally, or the big culminating event. Yeah. Um, the other question is now that Mando has removed his helmet in front of almost everybody on the show, do you think <laughs> like in, in now that almost anybody that had this belief about ha- having to obscure your face under a helmet probably doesn't exist in this galaxy? There's probably few people. Do you think season three, we're just going to have like, you know, Jin, he's going to be like mask off every once in a while. Like he's going to, it's more comfortable that way. I think that that might be, oh, go ahead, Brad. No, you got your, you're good. Go ahead. I was going to say, I think that might be the case and it would prevent him from having walked off the set before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wonder uh, if they'll, it'll be used as, I mean, um, a, a plot device of sorts where, when they he starts meeting back up with members of the Death Watch, that at some point he'll take off his helmet and it'll be like this big dramatic thing where they're like, "What the hell are you doing?" And like, they they have to have this you know talk between these different factions of Mandalorian in order to come together to you know bring Mandalore back. Yeah, like he'll be their evangelist to say like, "Hey, there's different <laughs> flavors of this." Yeah. Okay, uh, let's end with one big thing. Let's talk about the bigger picture here. Brian mentioned last week that this is all going to connect to this big, you know, Infinity War-style crossover event, which we don't know if it's a series or a movie. It would make sense to me to make a movie, but uh, I kind of see how the Mandalorian and the um, Rangers of the New Republic and Ahsoka kind of fit together and i think we've talked about that in the past but how does the book of boba fett fit into where that's all gonna connect together any ideas i think one thing we can look at is maul's use of the shadow collective in clone wars and utilizing and bringing the huts and the mandalorians and all of these other entities under one roof in order to take back mandalore so I'm wondering if there's still some skin in that game uh, from the the repercussions of what Maul built with with Crimson Dawn uh, and with that whole that whole situation. Maybe this could bring us Kira too, um, and and maybe pay off some of those storylines that we never really got finished out of um, Clone Wars and out of Solo with Maul's underworld. You you really can't. 
um, deal with the underworld in Star Wars anymore without it touching Maul and, and by extension Mandalore. And so I think that's how it could fit with all of this. But if Thrawn is coming back, it could also mean a whole lot of different things. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, Brad, any theories? No, I mean, it's it depends. Yeah, a lot of this just depends on how what happens with these other shows. You know, I Thrawn yeah. will definitely be a key part. And if anything, you know, I, I can see this becoming, you know, essentially their version, uh, you know, of the Thrawn trilogy, you know, in a way. Um, obviously, it'll be much different from, you know, what we mm. saw in the in those books. And there are certain characters who don't even exist, you know, in this universe. But yeah. It's um, it'll it'll definitely be something along the, those lines, uh, a large scale uh, event that will probably be akin to you know something that would have happened in a movie. Yeah. Okay, guys. Yeah. This, yeah. What were you gonna say? Well, I was gonna say Marvel had their big purple guy, and now we're gonna get our big blue guy. <laughs> That's true. Um, I've run out of my notes. Is is there any final thoughts on season two of The Mandalorian? Not necessarily season two, but I do. I wonder if there if there's still room to like, because we're getting we're now we're getting into this thing where we are establishing relationships between between characters that we never thought would have met. You know, like the idea of Luke being with Grogu now is interesting. It's something that we never would have thought of before until it came yeah. along as a possibility this season. And so I wonder if that means that leaves room open for Luke to still have, you know. A relationship with a character like Mara Jade, you know, and do something else, bring something else from the expanded universe. That is something that fans have wanted to see uh, in in Star Wars media for a long time, you know. And I, you know, whether it's a, a movie or a TV show. Um, so I, I'm just, I'm curious as to, I, yeah, what else they can do that, you know, brings characters like that in without necessarily needing to have, you know, uh, those chief characters like Luke there. Fans would freak the fuck out. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. They're yeah. going to do that anyway. Yeah. Uh, uh, Brian, any final thoughts? Um, you know, I really, I think this was a much better season than season one. And I think part of it is because it had all of those connections to the broader Star Wars galaxy. I know people, some people complain and, and it is their their right to not like that about it, but I really love to see how it connects with the larger universe. And I think the star Wars ness of this show is really what made it great. Um, especially this season, but I really love also how it never lost its focus on the relationship between Din and Grogu and his quest there. So that everything else was almost incidental, um, as it connected to those things, those broader things in the galaxy. Um, and, and I really like seeing how it played out and anything that gives me more Luke Skywalker at his height, at the height of his powers is really fascinating to me, especially when they've treated it with this, this nuance between light and dark, this really interesting place that Luke occupies. I think I wasn't expecting to have something meaningful said about Luke Skywalker on the Mandalorian, but here we are. And, uh. I'm I'm really excited about that. I can't wait to see the special on Christmas, the Disney Gallery one hour behind the scenes movie. So yeah, when so th 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 this time it's only one episode, right? Last time it was like eight episodes. I wonder or if that's a function of the pandemic. 
I, yeah. I actually what I wonder is that if it's merely because they've covered so much of how the show is made that there's not really too much more for them to delve into since the second season would be just more of the same in that department. Like I think that they're able to fit a lot of that stuff now into this since they have the world established and so they'll still talk to some of the filmmakers and stuff like that. But I, I, I wonder if there's just not as much to cover with the exception of talking about bringing these quote unquote new characters into the show and the execution of that. Um, yeah, because uh, otherwise I just feel like they would be treading a lot of the same uh, territory. I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of characters here, Brad, that they, they well, could do a well, one why, episode well, just on it's... like the characters alone. <laughs> well, yeah, but then, but then like, then with the rest of the episodes, like you're just, yeah. you know, it's, it's the same, same stuff, you know, just to, with different characters and a different storyline, you know? So I think a lot, a lot of the, you know, discussions they had about what the show could be and how to make it and all that stuff. It's, you know, we don't need to cover that again because it's it's a second season. Um, True. But yeah. Okay, guys. It was really fun chatting with you, not just today, but the last eight weeks about this series. And uh, I'm going to miss it. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe we can get together before, you know, next December and chat more star wars maybe maybe we, we can reconvene for like a bonus episode after the the disney gallery special airs oh yeah and that's a good idea Let's i, I do mean that. we the bad batch is coming up soon too oh yeah and that, that will have characters from the mandalorian it's all connected yeah. <laughs> um okay I'm, uh you can find uh, what you say uh, i was gonna say i just thanks for for having me on for this ride and anytime you want me to back back to talk about anything star wars or anything else i'm happy to oblige you you two are swell oh, gents. brian i have a question for you yeah you had mentioned i don't know if this was on the episode or if it was uh after we recorded but you mentioned that your uh your son was like hell-bent on this theory about jabba the hut and like re revenge. oh yeah did yeah, you when, well when, Rata the Hutt, Jabba's son, just kind of drops off the face of the map after his appearance in Clone Wars, and we never hear from him again. And uh, my son is pretty convinced that he's going to be after revenge for the death of his father. I was wondering yeah. if when they cut back to Jabba the Hutt's palace in that credit scene, if he, like, freaked out and was like, oh, my God, it's finally happening. <laughs> I'm going to have to ask him. <laughs> I will have to ask him about that. That is hilarious. Yeah. I'll have to find out about that. Okay, well, you can read uh, Brian's um, reviews of The Mandalorian on SlashFilm.com. I'll link it in the show notes, and you can all obviously find him every week, right, on Full of Sith Podcast? Yeah, the Full of Sith Podcast. Our last episode, we talked to uh, Mike Stackpole, uh, who wrote the X-Wing Rogue Squadron books uh, about Rogue Squadron. Very cool. Okay, you can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com. You can find this podcast on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at Peter at And please rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll see you on Monday. <laughs>